Hi, this is Dr. Kerry Gelb, the host of the film and documentary, Open Your Eyes. Today, I have a very special guest, Dr. Stuart Richer. Dr. Richer happens to be a good friend of mine and a mentor of mine. He graduated and got his OD degree from Berkeley. Uh, he's the chief of optometry at James Lovell Health Center in Northern Chicago. He has a PhD in human physiology and biophysics from Chicago Medical School. He's an associate professor of family and preventive medicine at the University at Chicago Medical School, Illinois College of Optometry, and University of Missouri, St. Louis. He's active in primary care, and he still does a lot of research, especially in the area of antioxidants. So welcome to the show, Stuart. Thank you for being here with me. Okay, you know, thanks for inviting me. This is really exciting. Uh, we, we, we talk a lot. Um, you're actually my mentor. Um, I consider you my mentor, and it's a great honor to be here. It's a great honor to be to have my uh, to have the cameo, let us say, in in the movie, which was really a wonderful effort and, and took a great great deal of time on your part, great deal of time, great deal of energy, great deal of money. So before we start, I'd just like to tell you that I've been practicing optometry for 38 years with the federal government. I'm at the largest uh, healthcare center in the United States, Captain James A. Lovell Federal Healthcare Center. And I've been taking care of both veterans and for the last 10 years or so, the mil U.S. military. So what I would like to say, you know, right off the bat, that the opinions that I'm going to express here in this podcast are my own, and they don't necessarily reflect the opinions of the U.S. government or my employer or the local personnel at the facility where I'm at. Now, having, having said that, I'd also like to correct that I run the residency program. So what I'm responsible for day in to day out is, is educating the next generation of optometrists who are about half my age, which is kind of interesting. And some of them may be even approaching a third of my age. So this is what, this is what happens when you practice for 38, 38 years. So um, I run the residency program for optometrists who already have a degree in optometry and uh, do a lot of teaching on the side uh, besides that. And I also run the educational program. So we have speakers come in uh, every week and we try to keep people abreast of the latest and greatest. But, you know, an optometrist's major responsibility actually is to protect the patient's uh, life, believe it or not. Uh, things like dissecting carotid aneurysm, which you might not think about, which can affect pupils uh, function. Uh, we saw a case of blown pupils today, which could be an aneurysm uh, in the body. So we, are, we spend a lot of time escorting people over to the emergency room. So my job, number one, is, is, is to make sure that we don't miss anything that's life-threatening. And secondly, we don't miss anything that is uh, vision-threatening, okay? Those are my responsibilities for the residency. Now, after that, I have to throw in preventive medicine because 80, 90% of what we see during the day has to do with chronic diseases and has to do with aging. We'll get, get into that in, in, a, in a little bit. But that's a little bit about myself. I studied photography. I studied photo-optical engineering uh, at Rochester Institute of Technology. I studied actually 
optometry and physiological optics um, at Berkeley. And then I got a PhD in phys human physiology and biophysics. And a while back, I started to research uh, and do clinical trials because to answer questions, uh, it was in actually in the early 80s that we had a hypothesis paper is, is macular degeneration a nutrition related uh, disease? And we now know the answer to that. Yes, in part, it is a nutrition related disease. So we've, I've been principal investigator of, of several uh, studies, randomized controlled clinical trials. One of them was recognized uh, uh, very high levels of government within the VA at the cabinet level. And also, um, uh, I, I had the honor of, of our group, I should say our team, because we never do anything alone in science any longer, but we, we received uh, an award at the U.S. Senate back in 2008. We were a final, finalist in, in science and technology uh, division of a major, major national competition. So we're really proud of that. We, 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 we brought lutein to the forefront, the importance of lutein for macular generation to the forefront before it was actively investigated at the National Institute of Health. So we're very, very proud of our accomplishments. And I'm proud of Kerry because I was third, uh, second author, I guess, on, on a clinical trial that, that Kerry ran. Uh, with members of all docs, which is Association of uh, Lens Crafters Doctors. And he had the foresight to do blood tests on middle-aged optometrists. And lo and behold, he found a lot of these optometrists had diabetes. And that was recognized with something called multispectral imaging, which is a way of using a camera to take different sections of the eye, spectral sections of the eye. And, and Carrie and I were able to uh, get this uh, article published in, in a pretty good journal, a diabetic journal. And what we showed is that uh, indeed we could pick up uh, early diabetes through a ret retina photographs uh, before there were any changes in blood sugar or what's known as A1C. So we were able to pick, identify insulin and insulin resistance early in these optometrists, which was associated with physical changes in the retina. So we thought that was a, a pretty good uh, pretty good joint effort. I think we became uh, pretty close working on that article and, and trying, to, trying to get that through the peer review process. So Carrie, my friend here, wears a lot of hats and um, he's, he's able to fold very nicely into the, into the research community. And I'm all about uh, research and clinical practice and pushing things forward. I've written six book chapters and about 75 manuscripts, peer reviewed manuscripts. And I'm an editor, uh, topical editor for a journal, uh, Journal of American College of Nutrition, which is one of the number, one of the top nutrition journals in the United States. So the articles on the eye and nutrition come across my, my desk and I'm reviewing those. And I'm, I always have something going with a study, uh, clinical trial, uh, night vision study, which we're presenting uh, at the end of the year at the Association for uh, Vision and Research Ophthalmology meeting, which Kerry is been at with me. Um, I've done some work on anti-aging with uh, resveratrol, uh, wrote a book chapter uh, on epigenetics. So I'm kind of have my hands in this because I think that there's a, we have these responsibilities as optometrists uh, in terms of, you know, diagnosis and not missing things of profound significance, but we also have this other hat uh, or we should have this hat, which uh, Carrie has spent a million dollars on basically trying to inform the public 
that we're wearing this other hat, that your optometrist can really make a huge difference uh, in your life. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that in a, in a while. So that's kind of the introduction. Great. Why is the eye such a good biomarker for systemic disease? Well, the eye is a wonderful biomarker, as you know, because we can, uh, all of the cranial nerve, we have 12 pairs of cranial nerves and, and our cranial nerves, basically uh, seven of them are involved with eyesight for one thing. So while we really talk about the eye brain together, we don't, we don't just talk about the eye. And then it's one of the only uh, organs in the body, the only organ where you can directly visualize the circulatory system of the eye, the, the arterials and venules on the, and the retina. So it can give you advanced insight about a patient's uh, aging process and the amount of disease that they have uh, in their eyes. So we can, as I mentioned, we can pick up diabetes, but we can also pick up car cardiovascular disease very, very early in patients. Um, and, and if we're knowledgeable, we can make recommend recommendations, I believe, to slow down the progress of these diseases. So the eye is really a, a biomarker of how we're aging in general, whether we're aging gracefully or whether we're aging uh, faster than we need to age. So if you were to put, you know, 100 children in a room and uh, have them play, most of them would play pretty well and pretty similarly with each other. And they would have uh, similar gait and, and similar attributes. But if you put, as you know, if you took 180 year olds and put them in, in an auditorium and, and or a gymnasium and looked at these same skill levels, the way they were ambulating their visual state, their cognition state and so forth, you would find that there's a huge difference um, as we get older in the rate of aging. So this is something that I've been very, very interested in. And um, at the VA, I've been privileged to take care of veterans, uh, starting with World War I veterans. Uh, in fact, I had a Civil War veteran, not a Civil War veteran, but I had the wife of a Civil War veteran uh, who I examined. So that was, you know, start, starting off um, uh, because the Civil War vets used to marry very, very young women often. And so that, that was kind of an interesting thing. Then I had the World War I veterans. And they, I, some of them were about four times my age when I started. And, and then I now have a, a large group of, well, the, the World War II guys are, are, are declining, but I still have a large number uh, of World War II guys that I've been taking care of. They're in, well into their 90s now. And then the Korean War veterans, and then the Vietnam War veterans, and then the Afghan, Afghan uh, the um, Gulf War uh, veterans. Uh, and Afghanistan uh, war veterans. So I've, I've seen it all in terms of uh, U.S. history and people who fought for our country. So it's great honor and privilege. I have not fought for the United States, uh, but I try to give back a little bit by taking care of these guys and gals. Let's not forget there are women veterans out there. So I examine women, men veterans of, of all ages. Tell us about some of the signs you see inside the eye when somebody is at risk for cardiovascular disease? That's a great question. So, you know, one of the things that I've been able to pick up on, uh, we like to talk about smokers, for instance, and smokers have, um, uh, you know, are gonna develop cataracts and macular degeneration uh, 10 years earlier than non-smokers. Well, if you're, if you're really observant looking at the outside of the eye, on the white of the eye, you can see little microaneurysms in your smokers. 
And this is an indication that the patient is becoming, uh, is or, 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 or was vitamin C deficient because vitamin C is the major antioxidant, uh, extracellular outside the cell antioxidant, and it's highly dependent in humans on dietary intake of uh, plant food, vegetables, and fruit. And so I can often pick this up in smokers and <clears throat> also certain uh, cataract types can, can indicate uh, an enhanced uh, ability to develop um, a cardiovascular disease, which is tied into something called insulin resistance, which Carrie and I uh, have studied together, but we can identify early diabetes from the outside of the eye as well. And, and subtle, subtle lots of little subtle things that we pick up over the years, if you know what to look like, even a fluttering eyelid could indicate a magnesium deficiency. And your magnesium status is one of eight very, very important biomarkers determining uh, you know, how well you're gonna do down the road. So there's, there's lots of things. We, we, uh, so I mentioned the outside of the eye, I mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the conjunctival uh, out pouchings. You know, even just, um, Kerry, just um, uh, asking the question or putting your stethoscope up and trying to screen for an abdominal aneurysm in patients. So if patients uh, are at risk for um, uh, these microaneurysms, they also may have um, bulging um, blood vessels, uh, arteries in, in their abdomen. Okay, so you could, you could counsel them to have an ultrasound and sometimes pick up a, 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 you know, an, an, a, a large aortic aneurysm of, of significant size that it's life-threatening. Also, as you know, you look at the retina, and the retina can tell you whether a person has mild, moderate, or severe arteriosclerotic disease. And it's, it's pretty easy to spot the patients who are usually younger and don't have much atherosclerosis in their retinas. And it's pretty simple, uh, even a first or second year optometry student, student could diagnose whether the patient has something called papilledema, where there's such hypertensive papilledema, where there's such severe uh, changes to the optic nerve and the blood pressure is elevated uh, typically. But it's those in-between decision points um, where the patient doesn't have a little bit of disease and they have or, or a lot of disease, but they're kind of in the middle, and they and you have to ask the questions. Uh, do you, does any? Did you have a mother or father who died of, of a heart attack or a stroke? And that's where, where I move into action. Um, in combination with looking directly at the blood vessels, I'm able to ask those questions. Was there any premature death in your family? And often they'll come out, and the patient will say, "Yeah, my my relatives have not lived past 50." And then what I do is I. I, you know, of course, alert the, their primary care doctor, notate in the chart that they have accelerated uh, atherosclerosis based on looking at the, um, uh, at the retina. But what's important to understand is those exact changes are occurring in the heart and, and um, the kidneys and the brain. So you're going to get multi-sensory impairment, multi-system impairment when you see things happening in the retina. So it keys you in that we need to, to move to not only looking at uh, cholesterol and triglycerides and so forth, the things you hear about all the time uh, from your doctor. But we run a series of tests uh, that is called a vertical serum analysis, which are advanced tests. Some of these uh, tests uh, you can ask your, you can run and typically are run if you've had a heart attack or a stroke. But we, as an optometrist, I like to 
to identify these before the patients had a heart attack or stroke. So I will often have these tests run, interpret the tests, because there are standards for the tests. And then in many, many cases, these tests require nutritional supplementation, in addition to the obvious changes in lifestyle, controlling blood pressure, blood sugar, lipids, uh, and so forth. You can actually make uh, recommendations, uh, which, which we've done many, 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 many times. It's sort of what I do. Um, and I try to teach this to students because many, many students are not uh, getting uh, and this information. And I don't like to leave it to my brethren in ophthalmology because they're used to working on acute conditions, emergency situations, uh, surgery. So they're into doing things to people. What I try to reflect is doing things for people by providing them information on how they can improve their, their lifestyle, on how they can you know, better their own lives by taking matters into their own hands. You met, mentioned before retinal imaging and looking at the back of the eye. If we see one little inflammatory spot, a drusen, one large drusen, what does that mean to a person for their risk of a heart attack? Yeah, if you see a, one large drusen, it doubles your death rate. I mean, that's, that's pretty profound. Just picking up one large drusen will indicate that you have double the risk of death. I want to just talk about, you know, in general, the fact that we are really not a healthy nation, okay? We need to, we need to, we need to really make this a point, okay? And <clears throat> preventing ocular disease is a complex proposition. It's, it's, it's something that needs to be taught and mentored. Uh, there's no single magic test or magic pill for any health condition today, so we know that. There's no universal dietary recommendation. Uh, all of those have failed for most patients. We have general guidelines and handouts we can provide to patients on more plant food consumption, more essential fatty acid consumption. Um, genetics does play a role in disease, okay? But we now know that epigenetics plays more of an important role, the type of things that Carrie's interested and in, brings to his patients, and I bring to my patients every day, is called epigenetics. So we're born with potentialities. We're born with a blueprint uh, for our health, but that doesn't mean we're going to build the house based on that blueprint. We're all going to make individual decision, decisions, good or bad. Or if another analogy, uh, we, there's a piano keyboard, and it has 88 keys, but it doesn't mean I'm gonna be a concert pianist when I sit down, all right? So my, the way I practice, the decisions I make, whether to practice or not to practice, what kind of instructors I have, what do I have any natural talent? Natural talent's important, but actually practicing is very important. And all the 10,000 little decisions we make every day for our health are what's determining most people's health. And so those are negative factors, you know, what we don't do, and they're positive factors, what we do do. So this is important. And what we also know from science, I mentioned that I have a PhD in physiology and biophysics. What we, so I'm very into cellular physiology. Uh, what we do know is, and physicians know this, is that we need to uh, treat early to prevent cell loss all over the body. And lifestyle, including um, nutritional supplements, are playing more of a role earlier than later. So see, pharmaceutical 
medications, as important as they are, play a role later in disease processes in general. And that's been the problem. We're trying to apply pharmaceuticals to lifestyle disease that, in, that involve epigenetic factors. When the modulation or, the, or, or, or creating a good environment for patients really should start early, as early as a patient is born, actually, right after they're born. And we should come with, a, we should come with an owner's manual. In Japan, people have an owner's manual. It tells them how to live from day one. All right, so this is very important. Uh, lifestyle. Uh, has to start early. It has to start um, uh, to prevent what's called insulin resistance. And so we don't develop a lot of fat around the belly or around our organs because today about 100 million people have to, are carrying too much fat. I'd like to say, Kerry, you're an athletic guy and I know you play a lot of baseball uh, with your son and so forth. I've seen you out there. I really respect that. And I'm not quite as athletic to you, but I did want to tell you at 64 years old, I have 26% body fat, which is not too bad. Most of my patients are going to be carrying 30 to 40% body fat. And just with age, we become actually, we, we tend to pick up body fat. So if we don't want to pick up all this body fat, we, all, we really have to move far beyond cholesterol and take matters into our own hands. And of course, it's related to all the different diseases we see, insulin resistance and body fat. So science, the science is here now, what I'm trying to say, but the implement, imp, implementing a bold strategy is really the key. And what you've done with your movie is to implement this bold strategy. One of the things I wanna show you, I'm gonna hold it up, is the wellness essentials for health. So thanks to Bausch & Lohm, we put out a 40-page guide in the last two years. So this was 2018, our first guide. And you'll notice, you know, if you open this, you'll see that Kerry Gelb is right here again as one of the board members of the Ocular Wellness and Nutrition Society. He's right here, Kerry Gelb. And we have 10 members across the country who are very influential and carry a lot of weight in their respective knowledge areas. And we're able to run two conferences a year. We have an executive director. And we see Kerry here talking about reaching for health and not disease. We've actually moved this to the colleges of optometry. So we have a faculty member and a student liaison at each of about a dozen colleges. One of the things I was president the last four years, I'm no longer president, I've given that to the next uh, person. Uh, but for the last four years, one of my goals was to come out with this guide for any optometrist to pick up. No excuses, any, any optometrist read chapter to chapter and get down the basics of ocular preventative medicine just by reading this, okay? This went out to 40,000 optometrists, so there's no excuses. You can download this right now after you're done with the podcast and look at Review of Optometry, uh, Ocular Wellness Society, and you can have it right on your desk and be reading it between patients. And so as we thumb through this, we go through all of the basic ingredients that people need for health, what they need to have, what they need to intake, which Joel Wallach, who's a, um, he's a uh, natural uh, physician, naturopath, and he's a veterinarian and a pathologist, comparative pathologist, he said we need 90 things. He's taught us that we need 90 different components. We need about um, 16 lettered vitamins, right, and major minerals, and then we need all these trace minerals, about 60 trace minerals, we need three essential fatty acids and about 20 amino acids. So we need these 90. And that, if you're, if you're a chimpanzee or an iguana, 
or, or a giraffe, it doesn't matter. You need those 90 different components. So we go through these 90 components, nutrition by the letter, to get people into the habit of asking uh, their patients whether they have plant food in their diet, whether they're eating good quality food. Then we move on to the pigments that are very important for the eye itself, the lutein and zeaxanthin that are in the uh, food chain that are extremely important for seeing well and for brain function. And then we get, and that's uh, food for thought here. Um, and then we get into uh, the science of supplements, all the different commercial partners who are on board. Uh, there's not just Bausch and Loan, but there's other companies that are, are very interested and, and helping out our society to get information out on prevention and wellness. And then we go into the National Eye Institute and their contributions. We go into some of the debates uh, in nutrition. And then we go into the microbiome, which is very important. And this changes everything, particularly for dermatologists, okay? Because now we know if we have patients who come in with facial complexion issues and so forth, we know that a large part of this is coming from the gut. So it's actually what we're not seeing. So if we have 50 trillion cells, we have something like 200 trillion cells in our gut. So we have many, many more cells in our gut. And they're a factory for vitamins and minerals. And they also can be damaged by uh, the modern food chain. So we teach patients, and I'm sure, Carrie, you teach patients, how to maintain a good uh, gut environment uh, of bacteria, which aid in our immune system. And they, made in, they, they aid in having proper neurotransmitters, so they affect our mood and our cognition. And again, our skin health, which is quite important, and our ability to fight cardiovascular disease, to fight diabetes and so forth. So it's what we don't see that's actually probably more important than what we see because this helps us absorb the nutrients from our food. Well, with gut problems, a lot of times that can lead to autoimmune disease. Right. And many autoimmune diseases affect the eye. Yes. I'm going to elaborate a little bit on how that whole process works. Well, this whole process is, is really, I would say, a true epidemic because the latest figures show that half of our children and young adults have an autoimmune disease. So we think that this is coming from some gut disruptors. And we think some of the gut disruptors are certain types of genetically modified food that can have an effect on the, on the gut. We think it's the overuse of antibiotics, not necessarily the antibiotics that you and I prescribe uh, for infections, but the anti-topical or, or, or you know, for systemic dis, dis, uh, manifestations of ocular disease. But we think it has to do with antibiotics that are put in for modern farming practices to keep microbes down in, in food farms. So we think that's disrupting the gut. We know that high fructose corn syrup and sugar in general is disrupting the gut by squeezing out bacteria, by creating a really great environment for fun, fungi and uh, those types of pathogens to grow. So there's many, many reasons. Even water that we are taking in, highly chlorinated and fluorinated water, can have an effect on gut health uh, also. Electromagnetic radiation is, is something that's really new that can have an effect on all cells in the body, uh, no doubt affecting gut health. Um, so there's a, many, many, many assaults uh, to gut health today compared to 100 years ago. And I think doctors are waking up and there certainly should, in my opinion, they should be prescribing 
uh, um, prebiotics, probiotics, and symbiotics. I can explain that if you want. Um, after they prescribe antibiotics, they should be supporting the patient's body so they don't have, end up with other um, drug-induced um, disease or what we call, uh, I guess, iatrogenic disease from the use of, of uh, antibiotics. So we really need to pay attention and the eye is no different. And we believe that we can um, change the course of eye diseases even today by establishing good health. But who's gonna tell the patient this? So that's the whole point. So um, we really need to open our eyes. We all really need to open our eyes to what the possibilities are with your optometrist because we're seeing 120 million people a year. And we often get to spend uh, you know, more time than other practitioners. And when I say more time, I mean about 30 minutes. Now, 30 minutes, don't, uh, don't, don't you know, say that's not a lot of time. Uh, in 1975, the average physician had about 45 minutes for an, for an examination, and they had about 18 minutes for a follow-up. Fast forward to today, and the average office visit is about 12 minutes with seven minutes for a follow-up, or 12 to 15 minutes, say 15 minutes with seven minutes for a follow-up. So we've shortened the amount of time drastically that we spend with the patient. At the same time, we have a more diverse population, uh, a greater number of ethnic groups and so forth with particular disease expression. And we have uh, uh, more senior citizens, more people who are aging, who require just because of the aging process, they're gonna require more time. So your average physician today is rude, hurried, rushed, busy, uncaring, arrogant, and unconcerned. And they're suffering from physician burnout. And it's not necessarily because they're bad people, it's because we have this broken disease management system and we, we have um, other players who have entered the sphere and are pushing for productivity. So <clears throat> I want to just mention this author who writes about this all, Eric Topol, T-O-P-O-L. He writes this book called Deep Medicine. It was published last year. And <clears throat> doctors, and, and what he states is doctors and patients are living today in a world of insufficient presence, right? What I just mentioned, there's not enough time. Insufficient time to see the patient, okay? Insufficient context that we're really not seeing the patient in terms of looking at them as a whole body and looking at their microbiome. And I haven't even mentioned biomarkers because I wanted to talk about biomarkers, which your doctor should be talking about, which go well beyond uh, hemoglobin A1C for diabetes and cholesterol measurements. There's six or eight other ones that are just as important in my view. Um, and insufficient data. Now, this is what he calls not deep medicine. We have very shallow medicine. And I think the beauty of what uh, you've done, Kerry, is you've run, brought all of this to the public's attention that we need to have deep optometry. We need to have deep medicine and we need to have cooperative medicine where we're helping all these, we're helping all these, um, we're helping all these, these, um, these uh, primary care doctors and physician assistants and nurse practitioners, we're helping them out to do their job better by providing insight and advanced warning of what's coming down the road from the pa for the patient. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to become, we're going to, uh, engage our responsibilities as optometrists, which in my view should be preventive, preventative eye care and preventative health care. 
And in my view, as important as ophthalmology is, op let ophthalmologists be ophthalmologists and let's take optometry in a direction where we're supporting uh, physicians and we're supporting um, um, all the other healthcare practitioners who are experiencing burnout. Now, why are they experiencing burnout? Because each day there are 5,600 articles published that are peer reviewed and entered into the library of medicine. So the library of medicine is a depository and, Ke and Kerry and I have an article there at the library of medicine if you wanna look it up in the diabetes field. But what, what happens is we've had 20 million articles in the last uh, 20 years in the library of medicine. In the last year alone, we put 2 million, we're putting 2 million in every year now. That's about 5,500 a day for the average physician. And I can assure you, even someone who tries to keep up cannot read 5,500 articles per day, not even the abstracts. So this is where we're gonna come into the field of artificial intelligence, which is going to be looking at images for us and helping us and assisting us. But we still need to make everything moving through 2020 and beyond, we still need to make this personal because we, we know something else that's very, very important. And Bruce Lipton has taught us this. And he's taught us, he's a, he's a famous PhD, wonderful gentleman, who's basically taught us that um, there is a placebo effect and it does affect people positively and negatively. So if you do not have face time with your patient, you're not going to get the outcomes that you would like to have. So just having the, the optometrist patient interaction is going to change the course of how that patient epigenet epigenetically expresses their genes. So there is no substitute for a caring doctor, okay? And now optometrists have about a half hour to spend with the patient, 25 minutes. We have more time, I think, right now than other physicians. Um, and we are able to fill in that gap. And plus we see that patient. So we could be impacting patients on a fundamental level, not condemning people to a disease. We can start developing data that can be used by, by uh, other doctors um, that can predict whether a person, for instance, I'll tell you, Carrie, how many diabetics do we have? 30 million, right? We have another 60 million who are undiagnosed. Did you know not only can we diagnose the other 60 million, but 13% of this 90 million are gonna have a condition called diabetic macular edema where they actually get fuzzy central vision because as you know, the retina starts to swell. And the, the amazing thing, this is not seen by telemedicine or artificial intelligence because the artificial intelligence is only looking at a flat view of the retina right now, the fundus photograph or the photos. You're gonna miss this and yet it's, starts to distort your ability to see contrast and color. So we could actually be sending, uh, identifying these very, very high risk patients with diabetic macular edema. Now, why is this important? Because the people with diabetic macular edema, they're the ones using up our healthcare resources. They're using, they're seeing doctors on average 25 times a year, 25 health visits a year if you have diabetic macular edema. Compared to a, uh, some who's a well-controlled diabetic patient who may only see, have four or five, six visits per year. So we could not only be helping the patient, but we could be saving the US government a lot of money if we stepped up our game. And one of the other articles that I published with optometrists 
um, was on using nutritional supplements. There's a product, as you know, I think I can mention from I Promise called the DVS formula. So if patients, uh, we, we had another random, we had a, a randomized controlled clinical trial was published in a diabetes journal. And what we showed is that not only was vision improving after going on the supplement product, not only was laser treatments and um, injections into the eye avoided, but the patients who took the supplement had one third the amount of neuropathy in their body. Okay, neuropathy, which is diabetes. In diabetes, you can often get pins and needles and loss of sensation and even amputation. So we're able to pick up these, this very, very um, important disease and the nuances of the disease. One of the other things. Talk about, I, what's in that, talk about what's in that supplement and how people could get it. They can go on to I Promise and get it over, you know, on the, on the internet or get it from their doctor. It's prescribed uh, by doctors is probably the best way to get it because you'll have beginning, you'll have, you'll have data showing you early and late stage images. So early, early and images, you take the supplement, you get re-imaged and you can see whether the supplement is having effect. By the way, that is going to, you know, Kerry knows that I'm working in this area on instrumentation. I think that's what's missing here is very easy ways of, of determining some of the function uh, of the eyes that has high impact. Um, we could talk about that for hours. But, you know, one of the things we need to bring to eye care here is better instruments, uh, artificial intelligence that can supply more information quickly, but without the doctor losing the personal touch, the doctor becoming a health coach. We also need to start exploring some of the biomarkers. And one of the things I'm trying to do is get bio Before you get to the biomarkers, you, you mentioned how important it is for having a personal interaction between the patient and the doctor. Absolutely. And it makes me sad of these people that are trying to make a quick buck and having people look in their cell phone and while they're sitting at home to get a prescription for glasses. Explain what the patient is missing out on by doing that. Well, they're missing out on Carrie Gelb, for one thing, and Stuart Richard. But optometrists are wonderful people. I mean, if you've ever met optometrists, you're, you know, I, I think we're as trusted as pharmacists. Pharmacists may argue with us, but we really have your, your best interest uh, at heart. For one thing, if you, you know, use one of these devices at home and, and find out that your vision is impaired or you, you need to change your glasses, that doesn't tell you what's causing the change in glasses. Perhaps, uh, you know, you have an, an early cataract that's uh, associated uh, with more astigmatism, such as a uh, cortical cataract, that's, that's associated with insulin resistance, which we've talking about, which is associated with early diabetes, which is associated with the fact that you're drinking 10 cups of coffee or you're drinking uh, four cans of soda every day, which is distorting uh, your microbiome and which is, you know, help, you know, so who's going to tell you about that? The app's not going to, there's not a little person who's going to jump out of the app and tell you, you know, your glasses are changing. You probably should cut back four or five cans of soda every day, you know? So that's the whole, the whole point. That's before, just one example. Before we get into biomarkers, before you talked about vitamin C, how does vitamin C affect the eye? Vitamin C, first of all, as I mentioned, uh, we, we, humans don't produce it. We have to take it in exogenously from the food. It's the major antioxidant outside the cells. So it's a, re, a universal reducing agent. So it keeps uh, free radicals 
uh, down. Free radicals are highly charged um, oxygen species or, or oxygen itself, which can lead to premature aging and premature cellular degeneration. So if you take vitamin C, you're not going to age as, as quickly. Uh, you're not going to develop cataracts as quickly. It also plays a role in macular generation. It's included in what's called the age-related eye disease nutritional supplement from the National Institute of Health. It's that important uh, because it regenerates other antioxidants in the body. So it's extremely important. It's found in every layer of the eye. So when you go from the cornea to the aqueous humor behind the cornea to the, to the, um, to the lens of the eye to the vitreous which is this jelly-like fluid next to the retina, to the retina, and then to the blood vessels themselves. It's involved uh, in every aspect of cellular physiology. It's a universal reducing agent for the body. What diseases could taking vitamin C help reduce the risk of well, as far as the eye goes? Cer certainly cataract. We know that. Uh, we know that people who have no vegetables and fruit, and you know, vegetables and fruit have a lot of vitamin C in it by definition. If you don't have any vegetables or fruit in your diet, the studies show you have a 14 times higher risk of developing cataract if you just eat meat and potatoes, for instance. You published the most quoted study in optometry and maybe in eye care, uh, the last study. Can right. you explain that and what you found? Okay, well, that's what we were acknowledged at the U.S. Senate for that, and that's called the Lutein Antioxidant Supplementation Trial. So lutein is a pigment found in dark green leafy vegetables. And uh, what it does is it builds up uh, in a very small spot in the eye called the fovea lutea. So we've known about this really important real estate since the 1860s. And that's the back of the eye that lets that's you see. That's the back of the eye when the doctor goes over with the ophthalmoscope, not something that an app on your phone is going to look at. Okay, you the have macular. to be an eye doctor. It's called the macular. It's the central part of the vision, uh, particularly the fovea. Uh, it's the center, you know, one to three degrees. It's, it's let's, let's say it's the Times Square. The, the real estate is so important. I'd say it's, it's Rodeo Drive of the eye. It's the Times Square of the eye. Okay, it's Miracle Mile here in Chicago. It's the most important real estate. So if that real estate is what allows us to see sharp images and it allows us to see color. Okay, so if we're missing it, it'll, it it's really going to disturb modern life because we need it to drive a car and we, we need it to read a new, read newspaper print. So if we lose our phobia, we lose our sense of independence, we lose our ambulation. And macular generation is the leading cause of loss of vision as we get older. And it's three times more common than glaucoma. And it, it, and it, it goes up with aging, but it goes up exponentially with aging. So it's not straight line. So particularly people 85 to 95 are going to have not, ten, not one or two times what people 75 to 85 have. They're going to have 10 times as, uh, as much macular generation. So lutein plays a very important role, we showed, uh, in visual function in people with earlier macular degeneration. And it's been shown that it pays, plays an important role in actually protecting us against the development of catastrophic vision loss, loss of the center of your vision. And that was shown in the ARIDS 2 study, which was published in 2013. So now many people are provided that supplement when they reach a certain stage of the disease. 
the provision of these nutrients will reduce the risk of developing macular degeneration somewhere around 25 to 30%, and lutein makes a very, very important contribution. But lutein for the other 90% of people makes also an important contribution because it improves our ability, it improves our ability to, um, it improves our ability to, uh, see I'm getting calls left and right here. So, um, it, it improves our ability to um, uh, see at night. It improves our ability to um, um, see, uh, you know, to play tennis, to see a, a, a tennis ball against the sky. It, in, it improves our range, our ability to, to see off into the distance. Um, it improves our ability to readapt to different lighting conditions when we go in from the inside to the outside. Um, uh, outdoors, it protects the light from uh, light exposure so we don't get photophobia. It protects us from, from computer screens so we don't get um, damage from excessive long-term use of computer screens. So it, ha it has a wonderful role. It, it protects us in driving uh, in terms of, uh, of, of um, you know, uh, making decisions at intersections, for instance. Our reaction times are tied uh, to this. Uh, component. It helps us in, in sports vision, okay? Um, all different types of uh, attributes uh, involved with uh, anticipation when you're, when you're playing sp speed or response and so forth. Um, it, it even is important in young school children. Uh, if young school children who have more macular pigment are shown to do better in, in, in math and science. You know, how important is that? You mentioned yeah. photophobia, which is sensitivity. Light sensitivity light. is not necessarily sunglasses that you buy online. It could be the fact that you have low macular pigment, which could be related to low cognition, low cognitive performance. So, you know, we can, an optometrist can, can look at you, uh, look either at images or, or do special testing called macular pigment optical density testing and determine, you know, what your macular pigment level is and optimize it. Go back to macular pigment and cognition and how it helps IQ points, helps memory. Exactly what, you, exactly what you're saying. It builds up in the brain and it's obviously not acting as a filter in the brain, but it has something to do with neural transmission and neural efficiency uh, through cell connections in, in the brain. Um, so we, we absolutely know that to be true and, and it's been studied on mul multiple, multiple different um, levels in the last five years. So just look at the last five years, Kerry, and how much we've learned about the eye in the last five years having to do with just macular pigment alone and, and, and cognition and the thousands of articles that are out there on, on this topic alone. And we're going to miss all of this if we have simple eye examinations in and out and just changes in prescriptions or getting your contacts online or whatever. We're going to miss a lot of this information for the public. I remember sitting in at one of your lectures and you mentioned resveratrol and you showed me a series of patients who had macular degeneration that refused to get injections in their eye, sure. instead cho chose to use resveratrol. Please explain that. Right. So <clears throat> resveratrol is, is, it's really not known for its antioxidant properties, but for its signaling properties and its management of metals. Uh, within the eye, 
And basically, it's a very small molecule that passes the uh, blood eye barrier and the blood, re uh, the blood retinal barrier, and it passes the blood brain barrier. And it's distributed throughout, throughout the body, the small molecule, and it's found in red wine. The problem with conventional modern red wine is there's only about a milligram of resveratrol um, in, a, in a glass of uh, red wine. But if you take not much more than that, maybe 25 uh, milligrams to 100 milligrams, and you take it uh, judiciously with a, a few other um, components that are found in red wine, for instance, um, and some vitamin D and other things, uh, actually the, the, the product that we used and we published a book chapter and several, several articles on this is, is, is Longevinix, longevinix.com, which is one of the most well-tested uh, red wine, the most well-tested well uh, red wine supplement. There's about 450 manufacturers of red wine, this is my opinion. Um, so we actually had patients who had post-traumatic stress disorder and they, were, they didn't want to jab with a needle, believe me in the eye and they would do, they did not want to have, they had serious uh, eye problems and we were able to uh, put them on Longevinex and as little as a week, we documented changes uh, in the retina, uh, several lines of improvement in vision. Now, not every patient responds to that. Typically, you need to wait about three to four months to see if there's, a, there's an effect. But we've had people, people now, we've published a whole series uh, in gerontology literature on um, people in their 90s actually using this. And over a series of months, we've seen consecutive improvements in both their physical structure of the eyes and the uh, visual acuity in people with advanced macular generation. We have some anecdotal evidence that it's helping cognition as well. Um, uh, what it does is it, uh, it works similar to the uh, more upstream if you do, then the injections into the eye that are used for, for advanced macular generation. It seems to, seems to hold patients. Uh, some patients for quite a few years, some people end up needing an injection, um, but we have several, several cases where this has been extremely promising. And so this is another area, again, where optometrists could play a complementary role to ophthalmologists who are doing these injections into the eye. We have about 6 million of those injections per year for AMD and about 6 million for diabetes. That's 12. It's a lot of injections, Dr. Gelb. <laughs> I remember you, in one of your lectures, you talked about how you had a can of sardines on your desk showing it to your patients. Explain why you recommend sardines to your patients. Well, I did an extensive analysis of what's causing... Um, some of these cardiovascular issues in African-Americans. You know, we have a lot of African-American veterans, probably one third of my patients are African-American. And you know, they come in and they'd be in their 50s and they'd have these white rings on their eyes, which is called arca senilis. And sometimes they could see them themselves in the mirror and they'd say, boy, I have these white rings. And that's very- Where are the, where are the white rings located? Right on the cornea. You can, you can see it with what- Show us with your hands. Uh, slit lamp biomicroscope, right on the outside of the eye on the corneas, okay? So, um, you know, a doctor with a microscope can see this. Sometimes a patient can see it just looking in the, in the mirror. So um, I had been doing a lot of research on this and found out that this was not a cholesterol uh, issue. It was not a statin deficiency, although many, many people believe it has to do primarily with cholesterol, but it really has to do with vitamin D deficiency and the way we handle lipids. 
Um, and lipids are handled with omega-3 fatty acids. And so we, what we found is when we put people on sardines, the, these rings lighten up a little bit often, or if we just use fish oil and vitamin D. So sardines are a really wonderful food to have. So I have a can there because a lot of people have in, in the Midwest here, not only are they vitamin D deficient, they're essential fatty acid deficient. They don't eat any fish. So they have no fish. They have, they have no vitamin D. These are two of the biomarkers that I wanted to talk about. So let's just mention them here. So something like 75% of the U.S. population is vitamin D insufficient or deficient. So this is an independent risk factor for mortality. It's an independent vitamin D, for, independent risk factor, whether you'll die in the hospital, in the, in the medical or surgical intensive care unit. It's, it's a risk factor for cancer. It's a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Vitamin D is a big deal. And, and if people are treated, oftentimes they're undertreated. They don't have enough, particularly African-Americans, they need higher doses because their skin uh, blocks ultraviolet B absorption. And there isn't very much sunlight here uh, nine months out of the year in Boston and in Chicago and northern latitudes. This is actually the cancer belt in the northern part of the United States and the cardiovascular belt because it, it enhances uh, if you're vitamin D deficient, your systolic blood pressure, that top number is tends to be higher uh, also. So it's an anti-inflammatory agent. It's also really nice to be on vitamin D if you're taking a statin because it will prevent the muscle issues, the myalgia and the muscle issues and so forth. So we started putting people on sardines and, and uh, we noticed that really had tremendous changes. Um, we like it because you can have a, you have a nice source of protein. Uh, you have a nice source of calcium. If you get bristling sardines, you can get calcium. Um, has a little magnesium in it, and and uh, uh, something called uh, lipoic acid, and uh, so you a CoQ10. So you get a little bit of everything in there. Okay, um, it's like a perfect food. It's like eggs. Eggs are more or less a perfect food, which which people have avoided for a long time. And now we're starting to come back and eat eggs now. So, you know, I have these props. They're my props of practice. I, and, 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 I'll, and I'll, I'll just, you know, if I see a, an African-American veteran who doesn't have any fish consumption, who uh, is living in sunny Illinois and not, not going south into, to, toward the equator at any time, and, and I will just, you know, say you have a sardines deficiency and put a can of sardines on their lap. And they'll remember that. And now I have thousands of patients on sardines. They see me in the hall and they say, I'm eating my sardines. I say, great. And uh, so I become, the, I become the sardine doctor, the sardines doctor. So if you put them on vitamin K2, uh, vitamin yeah. D3, do you also recommend vitamin K2? Oh, yeah. So the four fat solubles, you know this, are A, D, E, and K. So K2, if, if the patient has a good gut, good gut bacteria, they're automatically going to, the bacteria are going to produce the K2, where they eat H, cheese, they're going to get the K2. K2 is a calcium manager. So it's very important. It's very important if you're giving people high dose vitamin D to make sure they're on a multi with some vitamin A and to have, make sure they're on vitamin E because all of these fat solubles build up in the body. Um, and you don't want to imbalance yourself on the fat solubles. So that's an important area. Yeah. Let's talk about the biomarkers that you recommend patients get. Well, this is actually not my work. We actually had a physician, Russell Jaffe, who has his own site. Um, um, and I believe that is um, 
uh, yeah, it's R-U-S-S-E-L-L-J-A-F-F-E. He's an MD, PhD, used to be at the National Institute of Health and run their uh, laboratories there for about 10 years. Also a public health service officer for the United States government. So he's quite a guy. And he talks about the ones we know about, which is, you know, A1C for sugar. Um, but he also talks about an inflammatory marker called high sensitivity C-reactive protein. He talks about something called homocysteine, uh, which is actually an oxidant that builds up in a certain percentage of the patients who are under methylators. So if you're an under methylator, maybe 18% of the patients, you, you basically are, have uh, either a B12 or a folate deficiency, possibly B6 deficiency, and you're building up this oxidant that can damage blood vessels. He talks about something called the lymphocyte response assay, which is able to see if you're allergic to something, um, whether you have an immune memory. And so he tries to build up people's immune competence so that so many people today have allergies, Carrie. I mean, you go into a restaurant and it says, if you're allergic to this, 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 don't eat here. Well, what can you eat? I mean, you can't eat anything. <laughs> so um, um, we t he talks about magnesium, I mentioned, and potassium that we should be waking up in the morning and checking our urine with a test strip to make sure we're not acidic. Most Americans are far too acidic because we're eating acidic foods that acidify us. Um, again, the vitamin D is in here and the omega-3. And then just our general antioxidant protective system, which optometrists can measure with something called a Pharmanex scanner. I know you know about this. You put your hand in it and it can tell you what your antioxidant potential overall antioxidant potential system is. These are the type of tests, by the way, Carrie, I wanna bring into optometry schools, and I'm working to do that. To do either saliva tests or blood spot tests or a Pharmanex scanner or a macular pigment scanner from, um, from iPromise, they have a, a testing system. And I wanna put that in an office and expose our systems to the biomarkers and the equipment. So early on, when they're in their third and fourth year, they're already engaged in looking at the whole person, looking at their systemic health history, uh, looking at their eye in a different way that is far beyond refraction and binocular vision, looking at indicators of health of blood vessels with multispectral imaging, looking at dark adaptation. There's a, a very nice instrument that can now do uh, dark adaptation using artificial intelligence with a headset. Um, all of these things are explain, there. They're like, explain what dark adaptation is well, and how that can help patients. Is the, that test. It is the major test for macular generation. Okay. If you have dark, uh, an impaired dark adaptation uh, test, which is not related to um, you know, a rare disease, it's related to uh, early mac suspected macular generation, it has a 90% sensitivity and specificity to tell you whether you're going to develop macular generation. That's for one. And it also can tell you what stage of macular generation you are. So it can tell you about the biochemical status of the rods and cones of the eyes and their supporting structure beneath it called the retinal pigment epithelium. So it can tell you on a tissue level what's going on by doing a very quick 10-minute test. Explain how the test works. Well, the test basically, you're looking at a fixation target in the center and they project a, a small flashing light into an area of the retina which is most vulnerable to macular degeneration, which happens to be about five degrees away from the center of the fovea in the center. And you basically press a button when you can see 
this light. And then it, 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 it does what's called a staircase. It changes the intensity of the light stimulus and you have to press it each time until you develop, until you can see it. Now, most people can see this stimulus in six and a half minutes or less, but anything over six and a half minutes indicates that you have macular degeneration. And it's been very well vetted out. Uh, Greg Jackson's the scientist. He's done very, very careful research over more than a decade on using this instrument. Talk about the macular pigment optical density test that a lot of optometrists have in their office and yeah. how that can help patients. It's incredibly important because if we optimize the macular pigment optical density to 0.6 density units, um, then we will optimize 98% of visual function. Now, this is the military speaking, okay? So, the military what, what, knows this. Tell us what it is. What well, macular pigment optical density, again, we're going back to the fovea lutea and to the natural pigmentation that builds up within the retina on top of it to prevent uh, blue light, the, the degrading aspects of blue light from affecting the vision and also protects the underlying structures. So it's actually interlaced within the photoreceptors to protect them. So this is hence why a lutein is important in protecting against macular generation, but it's important in enhancing visual function. So if you get your macular pigment high enough, which I think only about 10% of the population has 0.6 or above, the majority of people are at about 0.35 or so. So they're deficient, which means they're allowing more blue and ultraviolet light to impact the very center of their retina, and to, which leads to the degeneration over time. That's been shown. And they're not seeing, uh, the, they're not having the quality of vision, which goes well beyond lens care, well beyond uh, lenses and contact lenses, is actually affecting the structure of the eye to improve vision. So that's why it's so, so important to know what your macular pigment optical density is and to try and fix it. Now, one of the things we didn't mention is that people are on acid blockers and there's a, for long periods of time, and there's actually an FDA black box warning against being on long-term acid blockade, proton pump inhibitors, for instance, um, is to, um, it will block not only all these fat-soluble vitamins we talked to, A, D, E, and K, but it also blocks the carotenoids. And so that's something your optometrist can help you with, uh, helping you with making sure that you're unnecessarily not being left on acid blockers for 10 or 20 years for convenience or because your physician forgot to take you off it. Because if you don't have an acid stomach, you don't absorb uh, many of these fat solubles and the carotenoids. So it's important. What we do is important on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the advice we give to patients and the counseling we give to patients. You mentioned the blood spot test. If you could talk about the omega blood spot test. Well, yeah, it's wonderful. One of the problems with the omega-3 studies, fish oil has gotten a bad rap, is that if you talk to the experts uh, who've, who've published hundreds of articles in this domain, you'll find that it's uh, your omega-3, uh, the, the effect of fish and omega-3 in your diet, it's highly related to the dose. So most people are underdosed on omega-3. They're not simply not getting enough fish in their diet or taking uh, the proper strength of fish oil they may be taking something um, that is not in, not in as good a form, maybe an estelester rather than a triglyceride. They may not be taking the proper strength. Um, and they may, not, uh, have, they may have a bile uh, problem. They may have a gallbladder issue and a bile problem. 
So there's lots of issues here, but the bottom, the bottom line is if you do this blood spot test, uh, which isn't that expensive, uh, it can show you uh, whether you're optimized. And optimization is about 8% of the fats in your cellular membranes should be these highly fluid uh, essential fatty acids, which by the way, are in abundance in the eye and brain. So they're really important for uh, eye acuity. They're really important for eye quotient, uh, for brain, brain function. So they're, they're, imp they're important for both uh, eye and brain health. And they also reduce cardiovascular risk, the risk of arrhythmias and so forth. They're important to skin health. Very important to macular generation, particularly one fraction of the fish oil called DHA or docohexanoic acid is very important for eye health. So um, we now have a blood spot test that you can do at home. Um, you can do in the office. All of these tests that I'm talking about, uh, potentially other than the um, lymphocyte response assay for allergens, can be done with blood spot testing. So that's very expensive. I think uh, very impressive. I think one of the problems is the blood spot tests are a little expensive right now. If you had all of them done, it would be several, several hundred dollars. And of course, insurance companies might ne not necessarily pay for some of these tests, but that doesn't mean they're not important and we shouldn't move toward using them more and uh, pressuring the healthcare industry to um, allow us to get these high valuable blood spot tests, saliva tests for stress. Stress is a big issue, as you know, also. A lot of times a patient will come in and they'll say their lid is twitching. Yeah. And a lot of doctors say it's from potassium, but what is it really from? Magnesium. I check the magnesium levels. So I, I, I'm, I'm fortunate that I have the, all the blood work for the patient. So I can often see if they're borderline magnesium uh, deficient. And then I encourage them to get more dark leafy green vegetables, nuts and seeds, or I put them on different types of magnesium. And then the, and then the fluttering of the lid disappears. And then I mentioned, by the way, your heart may stop the fluttering also, you know, because, you know, face it, most people don't die, carry of a heart attack from a plaque, right? They die from a cardiac arrhythmia, all right? That's what most people die of, okay? So the cholesterol-lowering drugs are not going to handle your arrhythmia, but a little magnesium goes a long way. I'm not saying that's the only thing, but magnesium plays a role there. I notice when I put patients on magnesium, for the lid flutter, that their calf, that their cramps in their calves go away. Sure. So tell me what you feel is the ideal diet for a patient. Well, again, I don't have an ideal diet because everyone's different. I mean, people have written about this based on blood type and people have certain uh, preferences. I don't think there's any one good diet, but I would, I would tell you what I wouldn't be eating today. Um, which is probably as important as what I would be eating. So one of the, you know, some of the habits I would have as particularly as you get older is I would be eating as a king for breakfast, a queen for lunch when you're active and a, and a pauper for dinner. I wouldn't be eating as much for dinner. I'd be pushing away from the table, which is opposite of what most people are doing. I'd be doing more um, nutrient dense food, uh, particularly organic food. Uh, that has uh, naturally more nutrients uh, within it. Um, I would be doing um, uh, foods that supply uh, many, many nutrients. Uh, these, these minerals that Joel Wallach talks about, which you can get from uh, um, 
you can get from certain types of salt, as you know, sea salt, uh, as opposed to regular salt uh, from kelp and so forth, or mineralized water. Uh, you know, glacial Arctic water is always a, a good choice. Uh, you know, mineralized water. Um, I would be, um, uh, you know, trying to get those trace minerals from root vegetables, uh, carrots, and, and things that grow in the ground because they are uh, vegetables with roots are actually absorbing the minerals that are in the soil. So you're getting a lot of your trace minerals. So I would definitely be doing that. And I would be getting the essential fatty acids from omega-3, uh, certainly from flaxseed if you don't, or algae-based uh, products if you're a vegetarian. Um, I would be doing um, uh, good sources of protein from eggs, for instance. Uh, uh, nature's perfect uh, protein. <clears throat> uh, maybe supplementing with, with some uh, you know, protein shakes. Uh, on days that you couldn't get a complete protein uh, in your diet, um, and lots of plant food. I mean, let's let's face it, uh, most people do not uh, get enough plant food. Only 13% of the population gets enough dark green leafy vegetables to support macular pigment, okay? Um, so that's really a crime, and most of those people are in California or Vermont. So what's the rest of the country doing? Uh, in terms of not getting sufficient plant food, hence the need, in my opinion, for broad-based supplementation. Um, and then you want to keep away from bad fats. So you want to keep away from uh, uh, fried food. Um, most oils in general can be problematic, especially if they're heated. Uh, they create oxidation in the bloodstream, uh, particularly without sufficient plant food. Um, so it's as much I'd want to be taking prebiotics, fiber, uh, you know, uh, soluble fiber, uh, sauerkraut, kimchi, you know, things that will support the health of the bacteria. Then I'd want to have sources of good bacteria, such as Greek yogurt or kefir, um, or probiotic formulas, multiple strains. And then I'd want to have the symbiotics, olive oil. Um, Dr. Gundry writes about olive oil and, and, and butter, real uh, grass-fed butter would be helpful to support uh, bacteria. So, you know, it's not any one thing we're doing uh, and there's not any one direction, but in general, you wanna have a more of a plant-based diet and you wanna have the minerals that you need, uh, particularly zinc and magnesium and selenium. Uh, these are really critical uh, that very few people, doctors talk about uh, the importance of having selenium to inhibit viral replication. For instance, selenium, very important, um, and against oxidation, supporting uh, glutathione. Uh, Sulfur-based um, uh, products or food products, onions, leeks, kale, uh, leeks, uh, onions, and garlic, for instance. These are some of the so-called superfoods. By the way, we have a board member, Steve Pratt, P-R-A-T-T, -T, ophthalmologist who's written four books, five books for the popular press. Uh, for, for the public on superfoods and how to, how to choose the correct foods, uh, high value, high nutrient dense foods. And by the way, as you get older, Carrie, you know, your diet has to get better. It doesn't have to get worse. It shouldn't get worse. So we have quite a resilience when we're, you know, 10 to 15 years old and we're eating a lot of junk food. Our bodies are in pretty good shape. But as you get older, you have all types of um, acquired insults to your body. 
and <clears throat> your digestive system isn't as good. You're not making as much hydrochloric acid to digest your food from your stomach, and you really need to pay more attention to your diet as you get older. So I always kid my, my vet, veteran patients when I'm in the exam room, and they're not doing any of the changes that I suggest. I can't force them to do anything. I can just make suggestions, and I'll come back, and you know, I'll just sit in the back, you know, I'll just sit up and I'll say, you know, do you drive a car? And they'll tell me, yeah, I drive a car. I say, how often do you change your oil? Oh, well, I change it every 3,000 miles. The manufacturer says to change it every 5,000. What about, you know, regular versus synthetic? The synthetic is supposed to, you know, the, the engine's supposed to last a lot longer if you put in synthetic oil. Oh, yeah, I always pay more and I get the synthetic oil change. And so I asked, I sit back and I said, now you're telling me you're drinking three cans or four cans of soda and a half a pot of coffee every day. And you have one portion of vegetables. It's always the same vegetable that you're eating, corn, which is not a vegetable. You have no fish in your diet. And you're telling me that you're taking much, much better of your car than your body. At which point I, I'll sit back and say, typical male, you know, <laughs> females take much more in tune with their bodies, take much better care of their bodies. And, and they'll look at me and they say, and, and I'll say, and, I, and, and, and they'll say, you know, Dr. Richard, you're right. I'm going to start. And so they may come back and they really maybe adopt one or two things, maybe a can of low salt V8 rather than soda, which gets them, you know, two portions of vegetables in their diet. And then they'll start. And eventually, I think I probably have about 70 to 80% impact on these patients, which is much better than my children, by the way. So I'm very happy about it. Are there any new biohacks that you're into, whether it's intermittent fasting or, or sauna, infrared sauna? Oh, what a wonderful question. Yeah. So I've been recommending photobiomodulation, red light and infrared saunas for the last several years. Uh, at our meeting, um, one of our meetings, we had world experts talking about uh, Ellis, Dr. Ellis from uh, the medical school in Wisconsin, talking about using photobiomodulation to treat macular generation. But you can even use, uh, uh, Dr. Bredesen, as you know, at UCLA, has added just a simple um, sauna to their protocol for, macular, for uh, Alzheimer's disease because the uh, long wavelengths of light go into the skull themselves, into the brain, and they increase mitochondria uh, um, vitality by about 18%. And so they found that they're getting dramatic improvements in people with macular, in, with Alzheimer's, I'm sorry, macular degenerative Alzheimer's. To me, it's the same thing because the nutrients that we need to bring on board are very, very similar. And the modalities we need to bring on board are very, very similar. So yeah, it's wonderful to sweat for detoxification for a long wavelength infrared sauna. A short wavelength infrared sauna is very good for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, for for reducing the risk of diabetes, um, for detoxification, and, and, and also um, just for overall feeling better. You feel so much better when you sit in a sauna a couple of days a week uh, for 15 minutes, half hour, and you take a quick shower, and you know, it brings, brings all of that mercury and you know, food additives, everything just kind of flows out of your skin in the shower. I try to do it every other day. I'm in the sauna, yeah. 130 degrees for 30 right. minutes, infrared. Right. 
And at 90 years old, you look pretty good. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing well for 90. <laughs> My last question for you is, if you could leave us with some of the new research that, that you're working on or that you could give us some conclusions on some recent research that you have read. I know it's impossible to read all millions of those research articles, but what has really impacted you lately? I think the most important thing that's impacted me is lighting and the fact that um, most people who go to a store to buy light bulbs don't know what they're doing and it's a very confusing array. Uh, most doctors know very little about lighting. Um, it's a very specialized field that's taught as a few classes in an architectural curriculum or in, a, in a, um, an art school. And the vast majority of uh, Americans have no idea how lighting impacts their life. So we've now been exposed for the first time in history to light emitting diodes. And as great as they are, they um, run for 50,000 hours as opposed to 1,000 hours for tungsten. Um, they're inexpensive. They're probably a little safer for the environment than fluorescent lighting. As important, as wonderful as they are, they, they, they give off a lot of light in the area of the eye that's sensitive to light, the yellow and green area of the, of the eye. Um, they're wonderful for lighting. Um, they're wonderful perhaps for waking up in the morning because they have a lot of blue in them, okay? But um, what they lack is good old fashioned, what's in good old fashioned tungsten and halogen lamps, the red and near infrared part of the spectrum. And as I mentioned, red and near infrared is absolutely essential. It makes up 40% of sunlight. So sunlight is sort of a generic term. Where does sunlight begin? Where does it end? Well, sunlight can extend anywhere from UVB, used to make vitamin D, all the way up to 2,000 nanometers in these far infrared saunas and everything in between. So sunlight isn't just the narrow spectrum that's in LED lights. So the problem is uh, if you have long-term exposure to, to to yellow and blue lights, it disrupts your circadian rhythm, your ability to sleep, and hence to heal when you go to sleep. And you're lacking the red and infrared light, which can have a detrimental effect because you don't have as much uh, production of mitochondrial energy in the cells of your eyes and brain and all over your body. So we're missing out on the red and infrared portion of the spectrum. And this is a perfect example of what your optometrist can teach you in the examination room about the importance of managing light in your life because light is life and life is light and we need it all. We need all portions of the spectrum to live. I do have to ask you, is the blue light coming off the computers and the digital devices dangerous to our eyes? I happen to think it's, it's dangerous uh, for uh, long-term exposure, chronic exposure. It, it can be dangerous and it can be dangerous for the secondary effects of having um, being dependent on screen time to the detriment of talking to your family and lack of socialization and, 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 and um, talking to your colleagues and talking uh, just to strangers. And this can have a terrible psychosomatic effect on you. Um, I think we need the face-to-face -face interaction. We need to take breaks from the blue screens. We need to add, uh, as Dr. Krauss uh, has taught you and I, we need to have yellow filters uh, on our screens at night. We have to have yellow lighting 
uh, at night. We have to use more tungsten and halogen, and perhaps even ultraviolet A uh, does not disrupt our sleep if we use black lights um, at night um, and really avoid these uh, very bright blue screens. screens. I'm very familiar. Uh, I've lectured around the world on blue light hazard um, on, and carotenoids. So I think the, the carotenoids do protect against the uh, blue light hazard. So it's important that you have high macular pigment optical density. And in the course of lecturing on this topic, I learned and ex evaluated the literature on the cellular level, showing that blue, blue light actually does have a cellular effect. Um, it can lead to cell death. So is I do it, believe- is it, just, that, is it just in uh, animal studies or also in human studies? Well, human studies are harder to do, obviously. So it's mostly cell culture studies. The cell culture studies are showing that. And how about the red light at night or is a yellow light at night? Which I think red that? light, uh, to have red night lights and to have your sauna with, uh, with a red uh, bulb in the sauna. So to add red in addition to near infrared and far infrared to immerse yourself in some red light um, is extremely important to our health um, with all of these, um, with the change in the lighting. Um, and, and basically, you know, the uh, tungsten lights were outlawed in Europe, I believe in 2012 and then in 2016 in the United States, but President Trump has just brought back tungsten lighting to the United States um, for people who still want to have a tungsten light or a halogen light on their desktop. Because we were, we were in the position, Kerry, where we might not in a few years time might not have access to red and near infrared light because it would have been outlawed. And I think our health would have suffered from not having access to red and near infrared light. I think you make a good point what, what Dr. Cruz uh, lectures on and talks a lot about it, that getting outside and being exposed to the full spectrum of light, yes. how it's good for your health, especially in the morning. I think you make a very good point there. Right. It's good for plants. It's good for humans. Well, I want to thank Dr. Stu Richer, who is a wealth of information, a wealth of knowledge. We could go on for hours and hours and hours, and he'll just be getting started. <laughs> so we're going to have him come back someday and, was, and speak to us some more. Dr. Richer, if somebody wants to get in touch with you and learn more about what you do, how can they do that? Uh, you can go on to, you can contact me at idoctorrichard.com, E-Y-E-D-O-C-T-O-R-R-I-C-H-E-R.com. I have uh, my publications on that uh, website. I have information about aging and uh, longevinex and resveratrol on that website. Uh, lots of published studies, uh, studies on vitamin D, studies on carotenoids, uh, et cetera. If you're a veteran, please visit me. Uh, at the uh, James Lovell Federal Healthcare Center, and uh, we will support you and praise you and take care of you very well for taking care of the United States because the soldier is very, very important. A soldier is much more important in guarding our freedoms than a journalist or a politician. It's the soldier who has guaranteed our freedoms. Dr. Richard, you're a true optometric hero. You're a true hero. You're one of my heroes. I want to thank you for being here. Likewise, Carrie. Thanks so much.